We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fellas, listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to... They won this game 17-3. to Baltimore scored three points. Three. And, um... I don't want to get into decibel wars here. I know the fan bases are very serious about their noise. Buffalo, that was an unbelievable effort. Let me tell you why. The 6,700 fans allowed in there. A huge part of the actual football of this was the Ravens could not execute a shotgun snap. They had a lot of problems with it. And they were saying, is it the wind? What is it? Patrick McCarry, the center, had to go to a hard count with 6,700 fans. That's it. 10% capacity. He even said afterwards it was an adjustment. To their credit, they got loud. Our buddy, Bradley Bozeman, another lineman on the Ravens, said it was so loud, we thought it was at max capacity. And that's great. You get your jollies, Bills fans, Zuba's pants, everything. That's incredible atmosphere. They were actually affecting this game. They had major issues at the line of scrimmage with the snap. It actually led to Lamar getting knocked out of the game because of the Bills fans. Again, 6,700. We compared them to Spartans. 300, the strength of 30,000. They're banging the seats. They're literally bruising their hands. I thought that that home field advantage really played a distinct part in this win for them. I mean it. Three points for the Ravens on the road. We'll get into Lamar in a little bit. But Buffalo and everything you did, awesome, awesome night. You're going on to KC. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rock Pal Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Mr. Kyle Brandt from Good Morning Football and NFL Network talking about the intensity of Bill's Mafia on full display in the stadium on Saturday night against Baltimore. Woo! Who is not fired up about this? Chris, is this maybe the most excited you've been as a fan? Uh, yeah. As, as a, at a legal drinking age, of course it is. Think of it. Fill your hand, sir. All right, this is... We need to... Number six. You and I. Yeah, someone's been over here day drinking. This is going to be great. Yeah. It's hey. My, it's my, hey, it's it's my last week of unemployment, so I figured I'd try to hang with Drew. So I <laughs> cracked my first beer at 8.30 this morning, so... Folks, we are now drinking our first legal podcast beers. We've been doing the show for six years now. 
five, six. Yeah. And this is the first time we can say we're drinking a beer while we're headed to the AFC title game. How incredible is that? It's delicious is what it God. is. What a week. Hilariously, as I was driving over here, you know, I got a, I got a Bills and Beers. So many of our listeners know who they are. They are the, Chris, is it fair to say they are the real, like, the godfathers of Bills podcasting? I believe so. I think they've been doing it like 12 years. 12 years before podcasts were even popular. So I get a tweet from Lars, the guy who runs the show over there at Bills and Beers, talking about how Ross Tucker... Uh, sub-potted us, which I guess is like kind of like sub-tweeting where you tweet about someone, but you don't actually let them know it's about them. Yep. <laughs> about our, so Ross Tucker didn't like the fact that uh, we, we gave him a little bit of static about this weekend's games. Well, see, I don't have any patience for that. And I'm not gonna, here, here's what I'll say. I'm not going to go listen to it. I'm not going to go look at it. But what I guess Ross Tucker is upset about is that I've called him a carpetbagger. And the fact that Saturday morning, I'm driving to, I'm driving around running errands, trying to just burn off some of this game day anxi- anxiety. And I hear him go on this nationally, I don't even know what it is. It's one of those shows where you buy airtime on AM radio and then you sell your own advertising. So anyone can do it. Chris, if you and I had the money, could get the money up, like when I win the Powerball, I'm going to do it just for kicks and rebroadcast our podcast. All right, we'd get kicked off immediately for your mouth. <laughs> we would immediately be cut. But you, you know what? I just pay the FCC fines. If I had that much money, screw them. But so with that in mind, I hear Mr. Tucker go on some gambling show about professional handicapping, and every single one of them has a cheesy Jersey accent, just a just a real ham-fisted type thing, and tell everybody about how bullish he is on the money line and the Ravens this weekend. Talking about how it's 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 his play of the day. It's a it's a done deal. It's the easiest money you could make all weekend is by betting on the Ravens. Why? Because it's the Bills. No articulation, no real like in-depth explanation for why he would bet against a team that he seems to do a lot around. But other than, well, come on, it's the Bills. I mean, it's the Bills and it's the Ravens. And everyone had a real good laugh about it. He's right there chumming it up with them, laughing it up. And then once he's done yucking it up with these people, two hours later, I see him tweeting about how he's at the stadium. And, hey, Bill's Mafia, it's game day. Let's get fired up. No, 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 you carpetbagger. You don't get to play both. <laughs> you don't get to play both sides. If you say, oh, Chris, is that or is that not disingenuous? It is, 100%. So apparently he doesn't like it that I came at him on social media about it after about a dozen beers. Well, guess what? Mr. Tucker, I say to you, I don't care. Mute me. It doesn't matter. I'm going to trash you when I hear it and see it. And if you don't like it, don't be that. <laughs> if you don't like being called something, don't be it. In this case, a carpetbagger. <laughs> this stuff is hysterical. And I hope, I hope he put a lot of money on the Baltimore Ravens. I hope he put a small fortune on the Ravens. I really do. Because, Chris, that did not pan out. No, it didn't. I will 100% listen to it. I will... DM Lars for the link so I can get it, rip it. You know, it's audio. It can be manipulated in any way you want. You know, if you have oh, a, Jesus. if you have a good producer, <laughs> Chris. I'm just saying, I can, Chris. I can do some things. Cheers to being the hardest drinking Pettiest Bills podcast. Cheers. And so, with that, let's jump right into what is the AFC division round recap: Bill seventeen, Ravens three. Starts with the stats of the game. Three. That's the number of touchdowns Lamar Jackson has led his team to scoring in division round playoff games 
in his career. Three games. Three, three touchdowns. That's it. Lamar was pressured on 55% of his dropbacks, which is a career high. Their rushing attack as a team averaged 4.8 yards per carry. Wide receiver Hollywood Brown, four catches for 87 yards. Tight end Mark Andrews, four catches on 11 targets for 28 yards with just one single first down catch and one target on an ill-fated interception. The third down conversions were badly slanted. Buffalo completing just four, converting just four of 13 for 30.7, whereas Baltimore was 7 of 17 for 41. Cornerbacks Levi Wallace and Josh Norman, a perfect 50% split of reps, 39 snaps apiece. One sack, one tackle, one forced fumble, nine total tackles between the two of them. Red zone percentage. The Ravens were 0 for 3, bringing Bill's opponents in the postseason here in 2020 to 2 and 8 in the red zone. Penalty disparity was on display. Ravens 8 for 59 yards, while the Bills had just 2 for 11. Defensive end Jerry Hughes, 68% of all snaps, the highest of any defensive line player. Two sacks, two tackles for a loss, three total tackles. And linebacker Matt Milano. Seven tackles, six of them solo, two passes defended. The Bills are undefeated when Matt Milano suits up for the defense. Ah, damn! Woo! God, that makes you feel good, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. The game, the, the game experience itself was something else, Chris. Right, first of all, surprise of the night, listener Andy Parks came to us about an hour and a half before kickoff with, hey, I have an extra... Bi- how many how many times do you ever get a DM like this, people? I have an extra Buffalo Bills jersey. I have an extra one. Would you be able to give it away or do something with it? Who does that? Other than people from Buffalo. Yeah, his... Parks' personality and how nice he is does not mesh well with... The our podcast of it, being it petty, runs, it, drunk, <laughs> everything that Parks is not. He is the living embodiment of the good-natured way Bills fans just are. And so, huge thank you to him because you did. You know, we we tweeted out a giveaway on, on kind of on the fly right before kickoff about hey, whoever can guess the final score, and we ended up giving it away to the kid who made it the closest. Uh, what was his name? Thomas Holland. I mailed it to him this morning. So Tom Holland, if you're out there. You can thank Andy Parks. Don't thank us. He's the real hero in all this. Now, for the party itself, Chris made an Arby's beef and cheddar inspired dip, which I'm not going to lie, I was a little afraid of when you were telling me that you were going to try to theme it on an Arby's dish. But how long did it take you to chef this thing up? Not long. I mean... All gourmet ingredients, folks. Yeah. This wasn't like... Mark had tweeted at us like, you're not using Velveeta? What the hell is a roux? Like... (laughs) Saturday afternoon, my girlfriend and I went to Wegmans and we collected all the ingredients and then we went back to her house and made this dip and I did not want, I wanted to make a roux. We added Fontina cheese and cheddar cheese and uh, we got roast beef from the deli and chopped that up and then we made, we took, uh, you can find a clone recipe online for Arby's sauce. He literally made his own Arby's sauce. Yeah, so we did that, and then it's like, 
Yeah, we don't want just like this our, dip. Oh. This dip was better than anything I've ever had at Arby's. It was incredible. Well, yeah, the Arby's sauce, like, yeah, it was. We took all the same ingredients that I think they use in the actual Arby's sauce, but then like I just can't let it be RB sauce. I'm going to have to... I know for you, you need to have heat in your sauce. So like I had... A, so you kicked it up a notch? Yeah, I had some spices we, in we there. We threw in some paprika and smoked pap- paprika. Folks, who knew that Chris was a culinary genius? I At am. least when it comes to dip. My One of my coworkers came to watch the game with us, and he got his first taste of disgruntled football, Drew. And <laughs> considering how much didn't go well on the offensive side of the ball in the first half, which we're going to talk about... And the Bills didn't score a touchdown until after halftime, I opened up a Molson Ice. The last one in the fridge. And just like that San Francisco Monday night game. And then we go down and score a touchdown, which prompted Chris to drive to the store and buy me another six-pack of Molson Ice Tallboys. As soon as Diggs got in the end zone, I was, al- <laughs> I was already on the landing by the door. By the door, And as soon as Diggs crossed the goal line, I was... Out of there, kind of like your actual dad. I just <laughs> left. I went right to Seven Eleven, and I bought a six pack. Of, <laughs> I bought a six pack of Molson Ice, and I was back. There was a smoke outline of you. Yeah, we're off like the Road Runner. Yeah. But, oh, that's funny. But the best, the, the best part was was that well, you live like two tenths of a mile from a Seven Eleven. So, Diggs crosses the goal line. I go get more a six pack of Molson Ice Tall Boys. I'm back. By the time the commercial break ends. Folks, that's that's the dedication we have to our craft over here and our stupid superstitions. That interception for a touchdown celebration is something I'll remember for a very long time. It was the greatest moment of my life. Chris, someone kicked a beer under my couch and I couldn't have cared less. My wife is like, honey, there's beer. I was, no one cares as I'm running around the room. I mean, people are yelling and rejoicing. Just pure football euphoria. And I feel my phone vibrating in my pocket. I pull it out. And it's listener Paul Mitchell from England. From England. Yep. So I answer it, and he's doing the exact same thing in his apartment. Except he's yelling, It's 3.53 in the morning, and I don't care. (laughs) It was one of the greatest things. Oh, to know that Bills fans around the globe had that same moment in unison around the world. I mean, for for a brief moment, Bills fans across, pro- Chris, what had to be, what, 15 different, uh, at least like 15, six or seven different time zones. Yeah. All collectively lost their minds at the same time. That is one for the mental scrapbook. And then after the game's over, again, my phone's going off. And I get FaceTimed by our listener from Vegas, the one who sent us the beer, Mr. Kyle Washington. We talked for about 20 minutes after the game. He's literally in his bathroom, smoking a cigar with the window open. <laughs> it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And in my head, I'm like, that's a total power move. Why aren't I doing that? You know, because I'm 14 beers deep and I'm thinking to myself, I should totally be smoking a cigar in my bathroom right now. That reminds me of the <laughs> scenes in Kicking and Screaming with Mike Dick and Will Ferrell, where Mike Dick is smoking and his wife's yelling at him, no smoking. And he hands it to Will Ferrell. And he's like, I'll tell no, it's Will. I'll, I'll tell him, honey. That's what it reminds me of. <laughs> like, I I bet Kyle's uh, lady does not allow that in the house. Oh, I'm sure. 
But it was awesome to talk to someone and see someone who didn't get to enjoy so much of this regular season. You know, being a displaced fan who typically goes out to bars to watch the game and who can usually get out and be with his game day crowd and his friends to know that, like, he got to see this and got to enjoy this and that he's been able to connect both with us through the podcast and keep it was just, Chris. It was just, it made me feel, I don't feel warm and fuzzy about much, but it really, this game really left me with a euphoria that I'm not going to lie to you. I still, I still feel a little bit of it and it's incredible. So Chris, when it comes down to breaking down the actual game itself, I'm not going to lie to you. It's been hard because every time I sit down to try to do like real statistical analysis or <laughs> rewatch the game, I just get all excited again and I have to fight the urge to crack another beer. It, it, well, was, it, was, it was a tough matchup to start. Oh, I mean, you were not definitely not yourself. No, it was definitely. And I'm still just so in order to really do our listeners justice and really dig into the nuts and bolts of this, we've recruited. One of the smart people. Buffalo rumbling. Good to see what someone with real talent can do when great opportunities are given to them instead of me. Are my teeth not white enough? Or like the Great Falls is the bedrock of my life eroding beneath me. The Bruce exclusive. I'm Bruce Nolan for Eyewitness News. Back to you, Mr. Nolan, how are we doing this evening? Dude, it's a party all the time. Just disco balls, dancers, the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, the Buffalo Bills are on their way to the AFC Championship. I feel like that's that's about fitting. I, I think so anyway, right? I mean, I don't know how else you would celebrate it, aside from the disco balls and the aforementioned dancers. I mean, it's almost like I don't know what to do with my hands at this point. So you just start to regress to what was popular the last time the bills were good and it was a long time ago so we all don't quite know how to act we're all wearing our zubas uh, it's great oh man if we were if we were going back to the 90s right now z cavaricis that that'd be the first thing i'd shoot for just because they're so stupid looking but hey if we if it's back i'd at least like to try it like the hammer pants like i, I want to see what that looks like that with like a pair of sneakers and just like a t-shirt walking around in pub they tell me that that fashion is cyclical, which means parachute pants are coming at some point, right? Oh, I, I there's a I have a website actually that I've been eyeing up for about three years now that sells parachute pants suits, the whole thing. Like you can get the one zip wind suits, you can get parachute pants, the whole nine. I trust me, I'm ready. When it comes back, I am ready. I feel like I need that in my life, girl. See, yeah, I need that in my life for now, sure. Now, here's an interesting. I, I have this for you. Now, it's because it's been kicking around inside my head. I'm a social creature when it comes to my sports. I mean, I, I, mm. you have to be if you want to attend Bills games in the dead of winter when the team sucks for as long as we have. Last week, I grilled the cover ones Greg Thompson over the fact that he watches these games alone, and I was just like, "I'm like, how? What? What do you do when something good happens? Like, who do you? How do you rejoice? How do you celebrate? Because he's." Being an out-of-town fan, it's just you, there's your odds of finding a group of people to watch with outside of a Bills Backers bar, which I know you were involved in for a while. Uh, short of that, it's hard to find those sorts of people to do these things with. So I guess here's the question. How does, how does someone like yourself enjoy a game like what we saw on Saturday? I also enjoy it by myself. <laughs> 
the the vast majority of all games I will watch with my wife and my dogs alone, and that's pretty much it. I, you know, I am I am a cursory member of the Cleveland Bills Backers Bar, but the funny thing about being me and being as antisocial as I am is that I'm really just there for moral support. <laughs> And I can I can really provide moral support from a distance. I don't have to physically be there to provide support. You know, if they're selling a T-shirt, I'll buy it. You know, if they need some suggestions, I'll do it. If they, you know, if they need some help, I'll, I'll chip in. But I don't really need to be a part of it in the social aspect. It's more of the, it's more of the, you know, my father always told me that when I was younger, he said, you know, Bruce, my job is to fund and encourage. And I think to myself, you know, that's kind of how I feel about the Cleveland Bills backers bar, right? Like, like, like I, if, they, if they have a shirt and they're selling it, I want to buy it. You know, I want to be a part of it. I want to contribute. And I, I, I wear my shirt proudly. And if somebody is looking for something in the, oh, go to the Cleveland Bills backers bar. They're great. Oh, are you going to be there? No. No, they're great. I'm just not going to be there. <laughs> so I just, I need, I need to find a way to buff them up and sing their praises without actually showing up. So then watching this game, kind of on your own here, what was your reaction to the Teron Johnson interception? I stood up from the couch and I said, yeah, baby. And then I looked at my wife and she went, yeah, baby. And then I sat back down. That was, that, that was the, most, the end of it. If that is not the most on-brand thing, I mean, I was about to go. My wife's like, hey, once the initial shock had worn off, but I was still raging, my wife's like, okay, okay, we've had our five-minute celebration. You should probably bring it down a notch. You know, the kid's upstairs and he's sleeping. And, and somebody should lift the couch and clean up that beer under the couch. Not gonna. And my response was, I will go get him, honey, because he needs to celebrate this too. And that's where she kind of was like, all right, all right, we need to hit the... <laughs> Drew's on the party highway and we need to find an exit ramp here quickly because <laughs> this is getting out of hand. My wife has this cheer she does where she goes B-U-double-F and then I say A-L-O and we kind of finish it. And that's about as high as we go, really, when it comes to that. She goes B-U-double-F, I'll go A-L-O and then that'll, that'll be, that's pretty much do the you guys do, do you guys throw a two-person wave in with it? Uh, not really. It's more of a reflection of the Ohio State O-H-I-O. Okay. Really? Okay. Than anything else. She just took something that was already kind of part of her fandom on the Ohio State side and just kind of morphed it and turned it into like a bastardized sort of version of a Buffalo Bills cheer. So we just kind of do that. But you know what? what? That I'll is, take it. That is pretty cool that you and your wife become Will Ferrell and Sherry O'Terry, the Spartan cheerleaders. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I know all the cheers because my wife was a cheerleader. And so she taught me all the cheers. You know, I know attack, attack, sack the quarterback. Like, I know how to do all these things, you know. <laughs> you know, I know be aggressive, be aggressive. I know the whole thing, man. <laughs> Multifaceted, sir. So in terms of football analysis, let's talk about this a little bit because I, as I, we told our listeners in the run-up, every time I try to get into the nuts and bolts of this thing, I just get distracted. I mean, these games have been hard for me because my fandom interferes with my ability to actually look at this analytically. It really does. Yeah, It's made it really difficult. Bruce, you should have been there on Saturday. So you had the double coverage Stefan Diggs overthrow early in the first quarter. The Gabe Davis probably should have had it touchdown pass and then the egregious overthrow where Diggs would have been gone towards the end of the first quarter and then that prompted Drew to tell me that 
That is who Josh Allen is, just like your tweet earlier today. Said, if that's who Josh Allen is, then three, he's unpayable. Three plays, two overthrows equal his entire body of work. We should not pay that man. These are knee-jerk oh. reactions in a vacuum. Also, I because th- if we're taking everything I say seriously, I think I also made a comment about Dable and his feet. Like you did, I said some, I, I said some not flattering things. And I want to talk about this offense for a second because, okay, okay. So last week we sat here and we talked about his curious play calling and some of the decisions that were made, <laughs> and we questioned them even with his biggest fan, Greg Thompson, who I now owe a very nice steak dinner because of this man, and he couldn't even defend some of the play calling we saw. So now I'm looking at. I mean, when you break a record for not running the ball, a record for not committing to try, even making an attempt to run the ball that has stood, according to Elias, for 60 years, doesn't that make your attack incredibly easy to forecast and prevent, like defend against? I think when you look at the Bills not running the ball basically at all in the first half, I have very little issue with not doing something that you already know isn't going to work well. And we've seen this from Dable on multiple occasions this year. We saw it in the against the Jets week one. We saw it against the Ravens in the most recent week. So we saw it at the beginning of the season, and we saw it at the end of the season, and in a smatterings in the middle of the season. Brian Dable is not a fan of beating your head against a wall. He is not a fan of doing the thing just to say you did it. Just to say, well... We tried. Sorry. I mean, what do you want me to do? You know, I tried to run and, you know, we got two yards of carry, but hey, we established it. So that's good. (laughs) Like he, he, he just doesn't care about that. And I'll level with you. It's kind of refreshing because this idea that you are absolutely required to pass the ball or you're required to run the ball for some semblance of balance. Balance is overrated in the NFL. Do the thing that's effective. You know what you and say do it that until it's not effective anymore. Well, and you say and that, and I and I feel like, and this is where I feel like this year has brought out more than anything. Just the, it's just underscored what an irrational like when a game's happening, how irrational I am. Because Chris, here I am yelling about not running the football, and I think I I think uh, Mike Shope actually said something about this on which for the, one of the first times in years I turned on WGR five fifty today on the drive home. And I'm listening to it, and Mike Shope goes, this is how stupid we should all feel. We've spent years complaining about Bill's teams that run the ball, run the ball, and then a t- just throw up a prayer on third down and then punt and play defense. Now we finally have a team that says, you know what, to hell with running. We're going to go with the higher percentage thing, which is passing. And we're all still angry about it. <laughs> We're all still nitpicking and finding criticism with it. It's because we're not utilizing uh, three down back TJ Yeldon. <laughs> you know, it's just it's one of those things where in in not every scenario, in not every circumstance is gaining the maximum amount of yards the goal. And I know that sounds really weird, but sometimes gaining the most yards possible on this play is not the goal. For example, third and one. The most important thing to do on third and one is get one yard. So in that case, the goal isn't to gain as many yards as possible. The gain is to have the highest probability of gaining one yard. In which case, sure, if that's a run play, let's do it. And if it's a spread quarterback sneak and that happens to count as a run play, then sure. But there are plenty of times 
when running the ball is a perfectly reasonable play call. But the vast majority of the time, if you can pass, you should pass. And the reason why this is hilarious to me is that these teams, they spend millions upon millions of dollars in resources and hundreds and thousands of hours of manpower to try to acquire a franchise quarterback. And then the second they do, they're immediately trying to evaluate and surround the franchise quarterback with as many weapons as humanly possible to maximize the success of said franchise quarterback. And then once they do, then they're like, gosh, we got to run the ball. <laughs> what? what? Well, We're all looking for that thing because we intrinsically know that passing is more important. If passing wasn't more important, we wouldn't be paying quarterbacks $40 million a year and trading all our assets in the first round to get them. Deshaun Watson wouldn't be looking down the barrel of three first-round picks being traded for him at some point this offseason if Houston decides to pull the trigger if that wasn't the most important thing. We know, we know intrinsically that passing the ball is more important. But yet when we watch the games, all that goes out the window. And we go, why aren't you running the ball? Okay, so Devin Singletary ended up running the ball a little bit more in the second half. Well, next, and he ended to the whopping tune of seven carries for 25 yards. But Congratulations those, oh, on your three and change. Okay, but here's what I'll say. And I guess that's a question I had. When you go back and review this, when you saw that opening drive in the second half, he had a pair of hard runs. I think each of them was like eight or nine yards. But he had the one for nine and I think another one for eight. Uh, he catches a first down, which almost goes for a touchdown, which sets up the touchdown to Diggs. And I start thinking to myself, so was the whole not using a running back thing, were we just literally trying to sucker them into opening it up at some point? Is that? I think really what it was is we wanted them to have the lightest possible personnel on the field on defense. I think that really when you look at the Ravens, what you don't want to do is try and go heavy against the Ravens, go 12 personnel, 21 personnel, and get there as many linebackers on the field. You want to spread them as thin as humanly possible because they do have depth issue at the cornerback and defensive back spots. So I want to run 10 personnel as much as humanly possible, maybe even zero running backs on the field, if at all possible. And with that, I want to spread you as thin as humanly possible. It's the same reason why early in this year, we talked about other teams going with 21 and 12 personnel so they could get A.J. Klein on the field. They wanted A.J. Klein on the field so they could take advantage of him in coverage. Well, in our preview show, your third linebacker's bad, you want to do that. But if your fourth corner is really bad, you want to take the opposite approach, especially if that's the strength of your team anyway. So if it's the weakness of the defense and it's the strength of your offense, do it all the time. In our preview show with Ken McCusick, we talked about the fact that we know that your top three corners might be arguably the three best in the NFL at what they do. They're all big, physical, good cover cornerbacks. So to your point, you go four wide. I mean, we talked about Mm -hmm. the uptick from we ran five plays in four wide receiver sets in 2019 when we played them to now that we have a Gabe Davis and we still have a Cole Beasley and a John Brown. We've run 15% of this season's plays out of 10 personnel with four wide receivers. So you kind of knew that that was going to be a thing. I just didn't know that we would refuse to run out of it. Now, were you at all surprised by the Ravens' approach on defense and the way that their zone... I mean, they came in here touted as the highest blitzing team in terms of overall percentage in the NFL. So 
then you look at Josh Allen's statistics and you say, okay, well, he's one of the best cornerbacks, if quarterbacks, if not the best, against the Blitz. This should be a bloodbath, or at least should look easier. And you watched the Ravens say, okay, we're not gonna, we're not one dimensional. We're gonna play some zone. We're gonna drop back in coverage and make your quarterback find holes in this, which with those big physical cornerbacks was difficult to do. Do you think that's the reason for all the suppressed offensive statistics? I do. I do think that the Ravens came out a little differently than I thought they were going to. I said leading up to the game that I don't think the Ravens are going to massively alter who they are for this game. I was wrong. The Ravens massively altered who they were for this game. The Ravens blitzed Josh Allen eight times in 40 dropbacks. For comparison, the Bills blitzed nine times in 30 dropbacks. The Bills, who were, mind you, they're still ninth in blitz percentage this particular year. They ended up blitzing on a much higher percentage of the plays than the Ravens did. And what the Ravens did was they had a lot of single high with a bracket or spy. And I know that rhymes, and it's the way I remind it. I, I, I remember it, you know, a single high with bracket or spy. Because you always have an extra man when you're single high. And the question is, what are you going to do with that man? Are you going to blitz him and bring five? Are you going to bracket somebody? Are you going to spy somebody? And so there was a lot of single high with bracket or spy. And they did a good job of picking who they were bracketing specifically sometimes Cole Beasley on outbreaking routes. They took away the thing that Josh Allen really wanted to do. They did a good job because I've said this before. There is a certain amount of rock, paper, scissors associated with defensive play calling. And sometimes you just got to guess right. And they did guess right. They also had some too high stuff. And uh, that that double coverage earlier to Stefan Diggs that you talked about, that's actually a cover one look that looked at the snap like it was cover zero. So, It was a really, really fun play call by Wink Martindale, the defensive coordinator of the Ravens. It looked like cover zero at the snap. But the opposite side of the field actually had a defender who, as soon as Josh Allen took his eyes off the defense and looked down for the shotgun snap, that defender started running back like a bat out of hell because they were covering the middle zone. But they were basically at the line of scrimmage when Josh Allen looked up at the defense. So this is kind of what we mean when we say disguise coverage. It's not just, am I different than what I look? It's not that simple. It's also, am I more conservative than what I look? Or am I more aggressive than what I look? There's lots of ways to disguise coverage. And a lot of times, the Ravens were actually more conservative than they appeared at the snap. That's a great example. It looked like it was cover zero and Stephon Diggs was going to have single man the whole way down the field. By the time Josh Allen decided to uncork that thing, There was actually a middle-of-the-field safety. Wink Martindale baited Josh Allen into making that throw. That's exactly what they wanted him to do because that was a middle-of-the-field throw against a single high look, which is exactly what you want. And they got it because they showed cover zero at the snap and then bailed out into a single high look. The Ravens appeared more aggressive a lot of times at the snap than they actually were. And I think that was a big part of making sure that this Bills offense didn't quite get the passing game going as well as they historically have. Oh, I'm sure. And when you look at the numbers, because I mean, and Sunday when I was finally, I was still feeling pretty good about it, but I felt like I needed to, I needed, I needed answers. So I started poking around through the numbers and here's what I came up with. I went all the way back to their, the, the Ravens lost to Kansas City, which was the last time I could find a team that they'd played this season with as many weapons as ours. And I looked at the statistics from that game. When you go back, so Tyreek Hill caught a 20-yard touchdown pass, and Mecole Hardman got loose for a 50-yarder. 
Well, we saw Diggs get open deep a couple times, which is showing that it can be done if you hit some of those deep shots or you have talented, fast, wide receivers. But when you look aside from that, even though it was a bloodbath of a game, it took a rushing touchdown from Mahomes and not one, but two touchdowns to offensive linemen in the red zone in order for them to run up the score like that. Because their cornerbacks and linebackers were taking away everything else as soon as they'd get into the red zone. They held Kelsey and Hill to under 80 yards apiece, even though each one of them caught 11 balls in that game. So I think that underscores that when they want to turn it on and actually play coverage, they can do a really good job of taking away some of the most elite offenses that exist in football. So that made me feel a little bit better about things from an offensive perspective. Now, looking back at our keys to victory, Chris, one of the things I said was going to win the Bills or lose the Bills this game. I said the performance of our number three, number four, and number five wide receiver, because we know that the outside boundary corners for the Ravens are really good. Marcus Peters, Marlon Humphreys, Jimmy Smith, the three of those guys have size, length, speed. They can stay in your hip pocket. When I looked back at that after the game, this underscores why it was so close. Those guys who were in most games are difference makers, had eight targets for two catches and seven yards. Gabe Davis had two miscues that could have dramatically changed the look of the game. He drops that touchdown. Okay? Yep. Then, he, I think because he tweaked something when he fell on that missed touchdown, Josh Allen throws him a ball, and he goes up for it. But you can see he doesn't, when he plants his left foot, he doesn't extend off of it. He kind of just gets up on his tiptoes instead of jumping. And because of it, it's an overthrow, which if he's hurt, he's hurt. And I give him credit for trying to gut it out. But that's another catch that would have netted like 20, 30 yards at the time. And the Ravens did a fantastic job of taking away all of the underneath options. There was no McKenzie. There was no Beasley. There's no Gabe Davis to save the day. So the result was, as we read off in the statistics, I mean, our wide receivers, number one and number two, had to do all of the heavy lifting, which is which is hard. It's hard, especially when you know that, hey, these are guys that teams were already game planning for. I mean, through the Diggs and Brown had to carry everything. What uh, Diggs had six first downs, which is 50% of our total third down conversions and our only offensive touchdown. And then you look at Brown, he was moved all over the formation. They were just trying to find a matchup they could get him out on. He had three first downs, all of them coming in the first half. And I mean, a lot of total targets, which just underscores what a good job the Ravens D did against everybody else. I mean, there was nothing. I, Chris, you can't fault Josh Allen for not producing more when you're going up against a defense that can take away playmakers like that. And you're essentially saying, hey, we're going to make you play two handed when you're used to being able to lean on some of these other players. Yeah, says the guy who was irritated beyond belief that he had some overthrows and some misses and we shouldn't pay him. <sighs> Bruce, I really Bruce, I really wish you could just watch a game with Drew. No, you don't cuz he <laughs> would you really? He'd hate my guts. Why would you put why would you wish that on him? I mean, I think at one point I threatened to bite Dable's ear. And that was just out of, in a fit of rage. Allen threw the ball 37 times and 20, 20, 22 of those targets went to Diggs and Brown. That underscores that nobody else was open. Their defense did a phenomenal job of taking everything else away. And thank God for us that we have a Diggs and a Brown. Because if we had gone into a game like this, sans a Stefan Diggs, a guy who you rely on every week to get 100 yards like it's clockwork, this game doesn't go our way. 
<laughs> it was what this I game mean, th- Think about the Bills versus Texans and Duke Williams getting 10 targets. You know, That's Duke exactly Williams is your point. top receiver in this game. You lose. And you probably lose badly. No, and that's exactly uh-huh. it. So when you look at it through that lens, I give the offense a lot of credit because they made do with what they had. Now, on the defensive side of the ball, on a much more positive note, can we call this, in your opinion, your time spent watching the Buffalo Bills, analyzing film, was this Fra- was this Leslie Frazier's like, piece de resistance? Was this his Sistine Chapel ceiling? I mean, was it? Because <laughs> I feel like it might have been. It certainly doesn't hurt the candidacy for the head coaching jobs that he's up for, that he happened to have this as his most recent game when he decided to interview with the Texans. I certainly don't think it hurts his case by any means. I do think it's one of Leslie Frazier's better games as far as shutting down a specifically difficult offense to shut down. I think that it's really interesting to me because what you'll notice is that when the Bills have made a concerted effort And you see that in their game plans this week when they focus or they sell out to do one thing. They usually get it done. When you sell out to stop a Raiders running back, you get usually stop. When you sell out to stop a Titans running back, they they pretty much get the job done. It's the other things. And it's funny because we used to talk about this with Bill Belichick all the time. Being able to take away the thing that you do best and being able to make you do left-handed work. But for the Bills, sometimes it's very obvious what they're trying to take away. It's Josh Jacobs. It's Derrick Henry. You know, it's the specific thing they're trying to take away and make you do left-handed work. And they've had moments where they've had flashes of brilliance at being able to take away a specific thing. In this case, it was that option offense. It was the read option game it was the pulling guards. It was a lot of the more exotic Greg Roman run schemes that he has a tendency to throw at you. And Greg Roman is one of the best run game designers in recent memory for the NFL. It's one of the reasons why Anthony Lynn was able to get a job with the Chargers as a head coach and might be up for the Seahawks offensive coordinator job because people like what he what does he call it? Exotic smash mouth. I think is what Greg Roman calls his running schemes. But it just goes to show you that, again, the team with the better passing offense won the game. No, and well, and that's, I guess, when you get down to the nuts and bolts of this and why I like it so much, this was probably one of the more exotic defensive games I've seen him call. I mean, you had quarters coverage with guys just ready to, you know, you'd hook defenders out there. And what I liked was 4-4 defense at times that kind of bailed out into a cover three. I mean, the thing I like about 4-4 defense, it's something you see in youth football. (laughs) It's something you see with little kids football. It's the only time that you were good at football? (laughs) 100%. (laughs) I mean, look at me. I've got long arms. And I was like five foot something when I was 10 years old. And then everyone else hit puberty and skyrocketed past me, and I was too small. But when you look at the the reason they do that is because it gives you flexibility to let kids who are still figuring out their bodies and their skill sets kind of act fluidly. 
You can play at different levels and have different responsibilities. And it's kind of a feeling out process for coaches to say, hey, here's how the kids are going to learn how to play football. Sometimes linebackers are going to step back and play safety if they're fast enough. Sometimes safeties are going to play linebacker. Sometimes linebackers are going to drop down near the line of scrimmage and you're going to play sort of like a hybrid defensive end role. We saw some of that. And when you have guys who have the athletic profiles like the Bills doing defense, guys like Jordan Poyer, guys like A.J. Klein, to his credit, who, even though I wasn't happy with him for jumping off sides, he can give you some things. <laughs> Matt Milano might be the perfect example because he can drop off in coverage and play at the back of the at the back of the front seven, but still come downhill and run and fill his run assignment correctly, incredibly well. I mean, I dredged up some statistics today on Matt Milano that were incredible. Not only have the Bills not lost this season when he's been on the field for us, but with and without him, the the per game averages are. Just there's an incredible disparity. The passing yards with or without him, there's like a 50, what is it, 58 yard difference. The points per game allowed with it, with or without Matt Milano, it's 18.6 to 29.8. The first downs, it's 20.4 to 25.3. That guy gives you so much flexibility because he can do this kind of, hey, hybrid in the box safety, but also I'm going to come down and fill at the line of scrimmage hard for a guy his size. How impressive was that flexibility to what they were able to accomplish in your eyes? One of the reasons why you want to make sure you have athletic linebackers, and specifically one of the reasons you want to make sure you have athletic players in general on defense is because it allows you to do the same things from different formations. And I'll give you a great example. So we just talked about Wink Martindale pulling a cover one look out of his butt, right? Because that middle of the field defender was actually almost on the line of scrimmage. You need somebody who's got some serious wheels to be able to pull that off. You just do not have the ability to do that. If you have Jaquan Johnson as the middle of the field defender, he's just not something you can pull off. So for example, the bills sometimes against run heavy teams, they'll run a lot of bare fronts, right? Well, you can do that and still run some fairly traditional zone coverages because you have linebackers with the athletic ability to be able to get to their landmarks from different locations, right? If you have someone in there who's really tight in the hips and doesn't flip well and doesn't move well, he has to be closer to his landmark when the play starts. And because of that, it limits what you can do from a disguise standpoint because you can't allow your defenders to get too far out of place because they don't have the athletic ability to get back there in time. And so when you have a converted safety like Matt Milano and an absolute freak of nature like Tremaine Edmonds, you can do some weird things that you can't do when A.J. Klein is your main linebacker. And so Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds, who also, by the way, played very well, against the Ravens. Tremaine Edmonds played very well. When you have those two freaks at the linebacker position, you start to understand why Sean McDermott got a rep as being someone who had a linebacker-centric defense. It's because if you've got good athletes at that position, you can pull a lot of stuff out of your hat because it looks different, but it's actually the same. Well, and, and that's one of the things that was so interesting about this because our defense, we, everyone knows, we're zone defense, we play zone concepts, and then we try to tackle, you know, rally to the ball. The timing of the blitzes was new. <laughs> the blitzing, not just that, but the pressure we were able to generate with our uh, defensive line. I mean, the Wallace blitz call, a corner blitz? 
A corner blitz in this economy? What? <laughs> That's the same blitz, very similar to the style that we uh, called with Tremaine, uh, Tredavious White. Yes. Against, uh, gosh, who was it? Uh, Broncos. Against the Broncos. When he forced the fumble and Jerry Hughes uh, picked it up and ran it back for a touchdown. Very similar concept to that blitz. And so it's just the fact that matters when you have really good athletes like Tremaine Edmonds and Tredavious White and Matt Milano, you can pull this stuff off and you kind of dabble in a little bit of everything. I think that the Bills defense and Sean McDermott get kind of a Dick Duranian sort of vibe from the remainder of the league and sometimes from fans as this basically it's just too high, it's cover two, it's boring, we're going to get pressure with four, and it's really not necessarily the case. They do some, they do a little bit of everything, so they give you a lot of stuff to prepare for, but they do, like I said before, they do a lot of things that look different at the snap, but they're actually the same thing. You look at it, you're like, oh, it looked weird, but it was really just cover three. Or it looked weird, but it was really just palms coverage. I mean, it was really pretty similar stuff. We're just, it's just a lot of window dressing. Oh, for sure. That's the same stuff you see from Sean McVay on offense you see from Leslie Frazier and Sean McDermott on defense. And that's the best way to think about it. The best way to think about it is what Sean McVay is to the offense is a lot of what we see from Sean McDermott's and Leslie Frazier's defense. I was surprised at the amount of run blitzes that you saw coming from the second and third level. I really was. I mean, when we hosted Ken McCusick or when I went on his show to do the Ravens film study preview of this game, I said, look, I don't think they throw a lot of... You don't see safeties coming all the way from the back to fill a run lane. <laughs> and yet here we were. And when you think about what that does to an RPO scheme, because it's essentially, especially the way the Ravens run it, you're running out of a pistol and you've got a handoff, a QB keeper option, and a few just very, I don't want to call it elementary, but that's kind of what it is. Passing concepts on every single play. And it's up to the quarterback to be able to read and react and defer as to what the right call is. I mean, none of that's new. Everyone knows that. But when you looked at what the Bills' pressure and defensive alignments, they kept Jackson guessing for so much of the night that he made a lot of poor decisions and misreads while trying to orchestrate that. I mean, some perfect example. First of all, the sack by Wallace. If Lamar Jackson is has his head on his shoulders and he's really seeing the field well, he can see that corner blitz coming as soon as he breaks free, and he knows that either I got to... I can't pull this ball out of my running back stomach or I've got to give him some sort of a signal to turn around so I can pitch it to him. Instead, he hangs on to it and just takes the sack. He throws the pick six because he failed to see Teron Johnson shadowing Mark Andrews, which it's not hard to shadow a team with just two quality receiving threats. And we talked about uh, the pterodactyl being inactive and how... <laughs> For for all the length and size that Daryl uh, Johnson brings to the table, Trent Murphy, that play with his tackle for a loss, that's why he was a good, healthy scratch. You needed a D-end with a lot of savvy, more so than physical tools, to win this one. And Murphy gave that to us. I mean, not getting fooled by the misdirection on that one play where Jackson should have read the fact that Murphy was crashing inside on him. And just, again, handed it off to the running back. But instead, he chose not to defer because he trusted that his athleticism would win. And Murphy didn't bite. Murphy just stood there and let him run himself into a three-yard hole. I mean, that's the third consecutive year that a seemingly dominant Ravens offensive line had its lunch eaten by a front seven in the divisional round. So at this point, do you, 
you almost have to question their offensive coordinator. I mean, there's going to be questions all offseason for that team. One of the last things I just want to touch on is how often the Bills won early, which is what allowed them to win late. Because would you call Lamar Jackson a good passer? Would you? Lamar Jackson at this point is a perfectly reasonable passer. Okay, he's a reasonable passer. Would you say that he's good? I would not go that far. I would not go as far as to say he's good. Okay. What allowed us to really win this game was how effective this Bills defense was on first down. Four of the Ravens' eight great first down plays. I, I, As I was looking over the play chart, I said, okay, anything over five yards. I'll call that a great play. Four of their eight for the entire game came on their very first drive. 11 negative first down plays, which I declared as two or fewer, or or you know, no gain, sacks. There was 11 of them, and they resulted in two sacks, three fumbles. Jackson stopped for a one-yard loss three separate times. And it's interesting that on almost every single one of them came on drives that ended with a negative result. The Wallace sack, that led to the drive with the first missed field goal. Twice, it just three and outs. Hey, you didn't get good yardage on first down. You don't have a quarterback who can throw you out of this hole. On four separate times during that interception for a touchdown drive, the Bills were just all over the place, creating pressure. That Now, when you think about it, if you're getting negative yardage on first down or you're only getting one yard on first down, you as a quarterback, even though you're marching down the field, that pressure starts to build inside your head saying, okay, if, if even if we get the first down here, I... I don't know if we're going to be able to get in. They may get another negative play. I got to do something. I got to do something. You're watching the clock run because they're they're keeping you from getting chunk plays. Now you get desperate and you gamble on a badly timed, badly read pass. And it ends up going the other way for the what I think is the game icing touchdown. I mean, that's and then the tackle for no gain on the first down on the following drive leads to a desperate decision to try to pass on the second down which results in the bad snap, which results in your quarterback getting concussed and knocked out of the contest. Every single drive that started with, or at least had a plethora of bad first down plays by the Ravens forced by our defense, ended in disaster for that that team. I credit this That's really a a staple of Greg Roman. And that's one of the reasons why there was some murmuring around the Baltimore media and fan base this year about Greg Roman and his offense is that The same thing happened to Greg Roman in Baltimore that happened to him in Buffalo that happened to him in San Francisco, which is that Greg Roman is a tremendous play designer and not necessarily a very good player adapter. You know, so when I look at Lamar Jackson, I don't I don't bust out the whole Lamar Jackson as a running back narrative very often, because if you look at Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson is doing what the offense is giving him in the passing game and the passing game of the Ravens would never, ever, ever be confused for the level of sophistication that is present in the Bills passing game ever. <laughs> like if you watch the passing concepts of Greg Roman, oh, it's super and you watch simple. the passing concepts of Brian Dable. It's not even close. Well, and that's so why, that's why they're that's why it was so easy to take away playing quarters coverage. You could drop back and say, OK, there's four guys. Where are you going to? And then you've got a hook defender. So if the, there's no comeback route for Hollywood Brown open most of the time. So the only time he really got free was when Jackson could buy time with his legs. And then he would find Hollywood Brown open downfield somewhere. 
But even then, that's not enough for you to build an NFL caliber or, or at least an offense worthy of going to the title game. I'll say that. Exactly. Yeah, you have to be able to you have to be able to play inside rhythm. You have to be able to play within the structure of a passing offense. And a lot of a lot of Lamar Jackson's best plays have occurred outside of structure, which is, I think, quite frankly, kind of a knock against Greg Roman, more so than a knock against Lamar Jackson. I don't view that as a knock against Lamar Jackson because he has made some very impressive throws inside structure. They just don't present themselves as opportunities very often. And more often than not, Lamar is forced to throw a dime to make it work because the scheme in the first two and a half seconds is not doing any favors. And then we have to break the pocket and play a little sandbag ball. And it's not necessarily always going to be like that in the NFL. You can't just be a playmaker. In the NFL. Now, being able to be a different difference maker and being able to be a playmaker is important. That's good. That's a valuable trait. It's one of the traits that we consistently underestimate when it comes to draft time. It's one of the reasons why a lot of people, myself included, were far too high on Josh Rosen than versus the way they should have been. It's Josh Rosen was not capable of making anything happen at all when he was forced off his platform, when he was pressured. And he was forced to make plays in the second phase of the offensive play. He can't do it. And so that's a part of playing quarterback in the NFL. But it shouldn't be all of playing quarterback in the NFL. And that's really important. That can't be all of being quarterback mm-hmm. in the NFL. No. So when you look, when you look at like, you look, so you look at Lamar Jackson, right? And you say, okay, Lamar, let's think, goodness gracious, let's go. Um, under two and a half seconds versus two and a half seconds or more. And you think, okay, we're totally going to make him into a a pocket passer and he's going to have to make plays inside the rhythm of the offense. And it's going to be great. And it's going to be absolutely perfect. And we're going to, we're totally going to nail him, right? It's going to be great. Okay. Well, Lamar Jackson in less than two seconds this year, we're looking at a 70% completion percentage. Okay, well, he can make plays inside the structure of the offense, but look at his attempts. 122 attempts inside two and a half seconds, 198 outside two and a half seconds. The basic structure of the offense is not doing him good enough. Now, he can still make plays. He's got most of his biggest plays happened after that. He had 112 quarterback rating after two and a half seconds, but his completion percentage dropped to 60%. So he can make plays within the structure of the offense. He can do it. The problem that you have is that the offense just wasn't helping him enough. The offense wasn't giving him enough gimmies. And that's one of the things we started to see from Brian Dable and Josh Allen this year is it wasn't just Josh Allen making plays. It was also him taking the easy stuff. We talked about that ad nauseum this past offseason. Taking the easy stuff. Being able to do what is necessary to take the easy stuff. If you look at Josh Allen in comparison, Josh Allen had an 84% completion percentage, almost 85, under two and a half seconds. <laughs> Outside of two and a half seconds, 58.3, but again, 23 touchdowns, nine interceptions. So again, he's making the big plays. But a big part of Josh Allen 
was inside the structure of the offense. And that's something that Lamar doesn't have. So if I were the Baltimore Ravens, I would be taking a very serious look at our offensive system and how much farther we can go with Greg Roman. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm happy that they don't get to start that until next season. And it's all because of us. I really do. It makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. It warms the cockles of my cold black heart. And so with that, at the end of everything, we always give away awards. Hero and Zero. Now, if you had a candidate for who you thought deserved to be the hero of this game, who would you nominate? I think the, the natural response is Taron Johnson. It is. I think you have to. Um but if you forced me off the reservation, if yeah. you said you're not allowed to pick Taron Johnson, I pick Justin Zimmer. Justin Zimmer. Now we got. I'm literally getting. So we talked a little bit about people from around the world. I got Facetimed by a listener from England, who after the Taron Johnson pick six, who was just yelling, just yelling along with us, and we were cheering, and we were all cheering, and he goes, "It's three fifty three in the morning, and I don't care." It was one of the greatest things. I've got messages from our one of our listeners in Australia, Mike Swenson, who's just like, Zimmer! Zimmer! <laughs> Talking about Justin Zimmer. It's like around the world, people are seeing that this just, that is so cool. But the fact that people are now starting to talk about Justin Zimmer after people questioned why he was even here earlier in the season, I think that speaks a lot to his development and this team's ability to bring players along. Don't you agree? I agree with you. And it really speaks to kind of what what level of arrogance, and I don't mean that in a negative way, what level of arrogance that Brandon Bean has in the development ability of his coaches. If you look at some of the people that Brandon Bean has drafted, they're freakish athletes. I mean, Josh Allen is a freakity freak of the athletes. Tremaine Emmons is a freakity freak of the athletes. And Tremaine Emmons, one of my big concerns about Tremaine Emmons is I just didn't think his instincts were that great on film compared to linebackers like Leighton Vander Esch and Roquan Smith coming out of college. Well, and, we talked about that the bean archetype is just you give me the guy, the Daryl Johnson, yep. the guy who yep. I can do. I have traits that you can't teach because we can teach you to be a football player. And Justin Zimmer is one of those people. People forget this. Justin Zimmer is a freakity freak athlete. If you look at his spider chart when it comes to athletic testing, it's basically a circle. <laughs> because Justin Zimmer, it's the it's the same shape as my mouth when you see the guy move and you're like, what? You know, it, it's Justin almost like Zimmer that dark uh, freak. That dark personality trait chart that I sent you that I took a test on. And you just laughed because it was like, yeah, see, this is why we don't do this type of testing, because you don't need that data unless you're going to do something, unless you're going to do something. With it. And yeah, that, no, I, I think the world's better off not knowing. Sometimes. I think my spider chart looked a lot like his. And so with that in mind, I mean, he really did have an impressive night. I'm glad he didn't pick Teron Johnson because I did. Here's the deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence. And nobody can hang with my stuff. Uh, you know, I'm just a just a big, hairy American winning machine. What I love about this is in the post-game interview, Teron Johnson is telling the press. He goes, once is a free, he's talking about the, the interception, obviously. That's all anybody wanted to ask him about. And he says, well, you know, I sat back. I knew the play. I knew, he goes, we knew based on their formation that they only had two or three possible calls. And I watched the quarterback's eyes. 
And I just knew how to float around and hunt. And when I saw him, he goes, I read his eyes the whole way. And I knew how to jump that route. And when I saw that green grass, I was like, all right, I, I ain't kneeling this thing. I'm going. That is a pattern. Okay. You do it once. It's a fluke. You do it twice. Now it's a pattern and something that's going to keep offensive coordinators up at night. Because that's his second pick six in the last month and a half. And he described that play the exact same way immediately following the Steelers game. Teron Johnson sits in these shallow zones, but he's deceptively fast to a spot. Deceptively fast for a guy who's not very big. And, I mean, that's just it. He's he's learning how to be such an instinctive football player, which we didn't see from him early in his career. We didn't even see it from him early on this season. It's almost like he's starting to peak at just the right time. And then when you look at his coverage statistics, he was also super effective. What, 59% snap share, defending one pass, was an integral part of the run defense with six solo tackles, uh, a tackle for loss? I mean, this might be... In one of the most pivotal games in our team's history, he had the game of his career. You can't scoff at that, right? No, absolutely you can't scoff at that. And it's just one of those things that when, when you're targeted in coverage and you give up 67 in a passer rating against your coverage, that's that's going to be fine. Like You're, you're going to be fine with that. Three run stops, you're going to have one, one missed tackle. Yeah, I'll take it. I mean... The Bills missed 12 tackles uh, against the Ravens, and that's not as bad as you would expect from the Bills. And if he makes six, misses one, three of them are run stops, has a pick six, is targeted nine times, but doesn't give up a ton of yardage and gets the pick, yeah, okay. Like, I'll take that from Teron Johnson. And the thing about Johnson is that when he was a rookie, I came away from his rookie year going, man, I think maybe there's something special. And there was kind of a step back. And then this year, that step back sort of continued. And we oftentimes forget he was benched. He got benched for an undrafted rookie out of the university at Buffalo. Like that was an actual thing that happened. The only difference was the person he was benched for got hurt so early in the game and he was forced back into action that we kind of forget it happened. But that absolutely happened. And then he came back in, and he's, like you said, picking the right time to play this well. Here's the, here's the thing. These types of games, Chris, playoff games, that's when you need guys outside of your usual suspects to step up and make plays. I mean, ask any Chiefs fan today. They'll tell you about how Chad Henney must have saved his, be- he saved his best football for one of the most dire moments in, their, in recent history for their team. But they needed somebody outside of the usual suspects, the Trey Whites, the Jerry Hughes, the, uh, the, the Josh Allens and Stephon Diggs. Somebody had to step up and make a difference in the game. That When you have such a razor-thin margin for error between these two teams, it's got to be someone else. And he was the one who stepped up and answered the bell. The Ravens had nobody who did the same for them. Yeah, it was the guy that got uh, hit in the head with a football at the Combine. <laughs> So I guess that oh, that right there earns you Player of the Week honors, or at least here on this show it does. But we have to give away an honorable mention. That goes to defensive end Jerry Hughes. Jerry Hughes said this during his Zoom call on Sunday with the media. I've hosted the AFC Championship game in my place for the last 11 years. Now I'm in it. People are texting me like, what should we do now? What do we do? You talked earlier about I don't know what to do with my hands. That's all of Jerry Hughes' friends going, well, wait a minute. 
What? Where? What are we supposed to do? You're never. You're never in this position. He is a strong reason we're even in that conversation because he had, I'd say, shy of the Jets game, he had one of his best performances of the season, pacing all defensive ends in playing time and performance in a game that needed all hands on deck up front. And aside from the statistical impact and his veteran leadership. Let's not forget that if he doesn't pressure Lamar so ferociously on second down, that pass to Teron Johnson, the hero of the game, probably doesn't happen. Because on that play, if you recall, he has Marquise Brown wide open. Wide open at the goal mouth. At best, they're stopping him at the two, and it's first and goal. And you know that they're going to run it five times, if they can, from that distance. Instead, he gets in breaks at that play, gets us to the next play, which ends up going in our favor. That's one of those things that will never be told as part of the Teron Johnson story, but I feel like it has to be included. And I think that there's going to be a day when we sit here, Chris, and we have to debate on this show whether or not that man's name belongs on the Bills Wall of Fame. We're just lucky that the day's not today. And he can give us at least one or two more games like that. And if he can... Maybe we can tell him in person how great we think he is when we see him driving through downtown Buffalo on the back of a float with a Lombardi trophy. God. Zero of the week. Bruce, I'm not going to... I'm not going to ask you to throw anyone on this because I have the biggest one of the week. The biggest zero. Perfect. I'm ready. The biggest zero of the week is yours truly, Drew Gear. You folks fell on your face. You get an F minus in my book. The reason I say this, and I got to open a fresh beer for this. Did your negativity reign supreme on Saturday night? Rock Sports Network show host Ryan Lasel ran into some issues. He, he, he landed tickets. And then suddenly the guest that he had chosen couldn't make it. And he reached out to me and said, Drew, do you want to come with me? Now, I wasn't expecting this. I had made some preparations. I wasn't, you know, my father was going to be coming over potentially. And I had coworkers coming over and I had this thing. But, and I also had this fear, this fear in my, if I'm being 100% honest, there was this fear inside of me that said, if I go after having not attended a game in person all year, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how I'm going to respond. I don't know what it's going to feel like being back inside this building with so few people and with security guards who are waiting to yell at me for nothing. And just my nervousness about this game and my inability to control that. (laughs) I mean it. And I declined the ticket. I chose not to go. I chose not to go. And well, obviously I had a great time. Chris, would you have understood? Yes, because I also was asked to go to the game, and I also declined based on superstition. Oh, look at this! Shocker! I did not know that, Chris. <laughs> fill your hand. This is why. I was, uh, <laughs> I was asked by our long snapper, who I, I don't know if, it's, if he gets tickets or what, but it was, I was going to go with Greg Trelone, Bill's flag, flag holder, and past guest of the show, but I was like, ah, and I, I literally told Reed, I said, superstition. I'm always there with Drew and Potter, 
I got to decline because I, if we lose. You don't know how much this warms me up inside because I was thinking the same thing for the last three, four, five days. It was literally gnawing at me. I'm like, oh, I'm going to miss out on this opportunity of a lifetime. But I don't know what will happen if, if I go. Will it? Bruce, we've had conversations about superstition, correct? And you do not believe in it. It's the dumbest thing in the world. I can't believe you. Guys, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> you guys, listen, I can turn that crap down because I'm Bruce Nolan and I don't like anybody. And that's cool. And I don't even like going to sporting events. But you guys, you guys turn down the lifetime of opportunity that you may never get again. You're going to turn down that opportunity specifically because you somehow believe that your presence has a cosmic effect on the outcome of the game in a negative fashion. Are you kidding me? Well, to be fair, I had already planned a party and I thought a party without a host would be somewhat suspect. Well, I've, especially I, because my father I think was in the they'd understand, Drew. <laughs> and that's what I've come to learn is that everyone would have understood. In fact, some of them might have enjoyed it more. If I had actually gone. Well, you might have left by (laughs) halftime. There would have been less beer spilled, I'm sure. But to know that both of us, to know that now sitting here for the first time, to know that both of us turned down tickets, that just feels like a thing. I mean, we had discussed it when tickets were up for sale. And I said, guys, we probably were so far back in line because we had. The story goes, we had season tickets for 10 years. But a couple years ago, the guy who held them had his third child. And so in that process, he could no longer come to games. He just couldn't commit the time to it. I mean, he had three kids under the age of five. And Plus, his wife, he lives out near Rochester. And his wife was like, I can't lose you for 14 hours a day on a, of a, in a single day on the weekend. So he gave them up. And as giving them up, I was like, well, we're not losing our seats. You're going to transfer them to me, and I'll continue to manage this thing. And in doing so, we lost... I think we lost like seven years of our seniority in that move. So I wasn't surprised to see that we were at the back of the line for tickets, but I remember having the conversation with these guys because we got close to the cutoff multiple times. And I kept saying to them, guys, if I can't get a four pack of tickets, we don't go. I'm not getting two because we, we did this as a team. We did this together. We've suffered together. We will rejoice in this together or we won't do it. And that also played a role. It weighed on me, but it played a role in that because I just felt, oh, God. And Ryan Lacell, I'm sure, is going to listen to this and go, what an idiot. What a loser. Oh, well, you know what? I tell Ryan I'm with him because <laughs> I can't believe you did that. <sighs> I know. We're hard to believe, Bruce. We are hard to believe. Chris, cheers. Yeah. I didn't even know that, buddy. Yeah. Look at this. I had a couple texts with Reed about going. Look at us. I was like, ah, superstition. I feel like Paul Rudd on Hot Ones. Who never thought we'd be here? Yeah. Not me. Not, Not look me. At us. <laughs> Bruce, thank you for joining us and talking us through all this lunacy. I very much appreciate it. Why don't you tell everybody what you have coming up this week over on the, uh, the Bruce Exclusive? Well, on Thursday, we're going to do, of course, the narrative episode that we historically do. And we're going to talk a little bit about plurality pie, as we have been known to do on occasions. But also, we're going to talk about remaining arguments that can be made against Josh Allen right now. And we're going to talk about why I want to win because I'm good and not because you suck. 
Yes. So we're going to talk about that on the Thursday episode of the Bruce Exclusive. On the Friday episode, we, of course, will take the mail bag, as we always do. We will take the almighty takes and we will uh, do a little strategy and talk about how to crumble the cookies of the Kansas City Chiefs. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Bruce Nolan, you can find him on the Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. Dude, if we saw each other at that game, we would have done that Spider-Man point. (laughs) You? You? Wait, wait a minute. You? I know you from somewhere. Well, then you know what we would have done. We would have taken a picture. Sent it to Potter. Oh, sent it straight to Potter. (laughs) Sent it straight to Potter. And been like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Watching the game with your lady. We're at the game. Final thoughts on all of this. Now, as I as I talked about, I asked Ryan. You know, I was supposed to. I could have gone to the game with Ryan Lacell. Yeah, I could have gone to the game with Greg Trelone, but so before but to, I didn't. So before tonight's show, I reached out to him to ask, just what was it like in the stadium? And he was talking about it, and he said a lot of things about how you know. They, they were being lenient enough to allow high fives and hugs and occasional mask removal, but everything he goes, it felt like a watered down version of a regular game, which is something I was worried about. Something that I was like, I don't know how I would ex- accept that as the game day experience versus what I'm expecting as a guy who's been there for as many years as we've gone in there. And then I asked him, I said, what was the energy like after the interception? He said... <laughs> It was palpable. For the interception, the run back, and the ensuing celebration, it legitimately made me forget about the last 10 months and the quarantine. Like everything felt normal for a brief moment. Cheering, screaming, high fives, hugs, being back where I was as a fan, and I was where I was meant to be in that moment. It was the literal definition of where else would you rather be? From the time Johnson picked it to the ensuing kickoff, there wasn't a place on earth. I would have rather been in that moment. Seems legit. And then in talking to one of my brothers who was watching with friends in their apartment in downtown uh, Buffalo's Allentown area, which is not a joke. It's actually already referred to as Allentown. I mean, in the Elmwood Village strip isn't far. He told me this. I slept over there because I didn't want to drive the 40 minutes home with it being so late. Mistake, because no one slept. We spent the night watching all the ruckus going on from my buddy's balcony, 
And at one point, we even ventured out to take it all in. It was chaos. <laughs> there were cars driving around honking and yelling, let's go Buffalo, out the windows. There was people jumping through tables literally in the middle of the streets. The cops tried breaking it up for a while and then gave up and instead would just drive by and use the bullhorn to ask you all to please take the tables off the street. <laughs> people were blasting the shout song from their patios and balconies and open windows, literally throwing beers out into the street and jello shots to random people walking by wearing Bill's gear. Outside of Jim's stakeout on Elmwood, we saw a guy in his late 40s with little wire rim glasses. <laughs> all decked, he was, he told me, this guy looked like any other day of the week. He'd be an accountant or a teacher or some other bullshit job. <laughs> bullshit desk job. All decked out in Zubaz, half in the bag, half a chicken finger sub in each hand, singing, I got a feeling Buffalo's going to the Super Bowl. At the top of his lungs. You know, we should have had Bruce sing that instead of you. Even on to like 3 a.m. when I was trying to sleep on the couch, I would randomly hear off in the distance. Groups of people just start chanting out on the street. Just off in the distance. Chris, how cool is that? This whole city. Yeah, that's, that's what life is like living in a blue collar city. And then I reflected back on my own experience. People from the, around the world were reaching out to me just to yell and rejoice, crack a few beers together, and embrace this thing that has us all here, the Buffalo Bills. That's how powerful this game is, and that's how electrifying this season has been. It's been enough to make you forget for a little while just how hard the last 12 months have been, and how uncertain the future is, and how much we've lost. Because in that moment, we all felt like winners. And even if it's nothing monumental, it's for damn sure something that can help you sleep at night. It's another week and another performance by the Bills where we didn't play our best team football, and yet we still got the better of our opponent. Survive in advance. It's enough to make you think that maybe if this team could put together the offense we saw against Indy and the defense we saw against Baltimore, and they could just ever click at the same time Oh, Chris! I, I'm trying to fight it. <laughs> trying to fight it. I just hold it off until next week. This has been one hell of a ride. This team just feels special. So special that we're suddenly daring to dream about things that if any year before, when you said, hey, seriously, if you were to walk into a bar and say, I think the Bills could win the AFC Championship game this year, you would have gotten laughed out into the parking lot. And yet here we are. This season has been a blast. This podcast has probably been the most fun it's been since we started. And luckily for all of us, it's not over yet. Chris, to the next step. <sighs> Make sure you tune in to part two of our Rock Pile Report podcast this week. The AFC Championship Game Preview featuring Ryan Tracy of Locked On Chiefs. He's going to join us to go over some of the finer points of this matchup. We're going to be talking statistics, talking about matchups. It's, it's going to be fun. We're going to take a long look, Chris, you and I, at what this game philosophically means. Not just to the Bills, not just to the Chiefs, but to the AFC and maybe even the NFL as a whole. It's going to be a great time. Make sure you come out for it. It's going to drop tomorrow night. 
But for now, we got to get the hell out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. That was Bruce Nolan. And this has been the Rock Report.